I think the biggest issue when it comes to obesity and metabolic syndrome is a hyperinsulinemic state. So it's our body overproducing insulin. And this happens for, I think, for two main reasons. We're told to eat a whooping six to ten uh, servings of, of grains a day or carbohydrates a day. It's, it's quite ridiculous. I, I believe that probably the general population drinks more soda than they drink water, unfortunately. More butter, more coconut oil. It wasn't weird then, mm. but it, it, it's weird now to tell people to not snack. People think that they're supposed to snack. Yeah. I think that we have now learned that it's definitely not the best tool to help with metabolic syndrome. It's an adjunct to overall health. People that have metabolic syndrome focus exclusively on exercise as a, as a healing mechanism. They're not going to have great success. Body, mind, empowerment. Get stronger, faster, smarter, quicker, friendlier, more helpful, more driven. Everything the body needs. Control your mind. Welcome to the Body, Mind, Empowerment podcast. I'm your host, Simland, and our guest today is Nadia Brito Nateguana who's a licensed naturopathic doctor from Ontario, Canada. Her interest is in the human body's ability to heal itself and use it for improved wellness. Nadia, I want to welcome you to our show. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sam. Can you give us a little short overview of you know, what got you into naturopathic medicine? Sure. So my, uh, as you correctly stated, my training is in naturopathic medicine. I've been in clinical practice for about 15 years. Um, I did uh, go to school here in, in Canada, in Toronto, in North York more specifically. Um, my, my background is in uh, biology. That was my, my undergraduate degree. Um, my initial um, goal was to go to medical school. Um, and then I you know, in, in during university, I ran into some uh, digestive concerns. I had IBS, um, and it was it, it affected my quality quality of life quite a bit. And so I decided to look into alternative uh, treatments, and then decided to go into naturopathic medicine as my profession. So that was, I guess, uh, twenty years ago now, uh, and I started the naturopathic college, and. Um, uh, sort of uh, in my journey, uh, right after I finished um, the naturopathic college, I actually went to Southern Africa, which is where I'm originally from. I'm from mm. a country called Mozambique. Nice. So I actually stayed in Mozambique for about 10 years. I worked uh, a little bit with, um, I had a complementary uh, sort of setting in my clinic. So we had other medical doctors and uh, uh, myself, I was the naturopath. So people, the, the, the other doctors basically refer their patients to me for dietary counseling. So my focus has always been on diet and metabolic syndrome from the very beginning. Mm. So uh, early on, I, ha I really had to navigate through this because I, I don't think, um, I think just like in the, in the medical profession, um, the conventional medical profession, naturopaths, we, we get a bit of nutrition training, but we don't really get uh, very good specifics. So I sort of had to figure this out on my own about 15 years ago, trying to help people, even in Mozambique, people's main concern, at least the people that came to see me, uh, was weight, uh, obesity, mm. diabetes, uh, sort of uh, hypertension, all the metabolic syndrome uh, expressions that we see today. Uh, this was already happening uh, 15 years ago in Mozambique. And that's, of course, the, the group of people that I saw. I didn't, I didn't get to go on and see and do other naturopathic sort of uh, approaches. It was diet that was my focus and metabolic syndrome mm. uh, specifically. Hmm. Eventually, things got a lot more interesting <laughs> throughout my journey. I started to see more specific groups of people, um, and eventually, it actually got pretty focused for me about 
I would say about eight years ago, I, I went in, I had, again, my own uh, concerns, health concerns. I was diagnosed with PCOS, which is polycystic ovarian syndrome, and I was struggling with infertility myself. Mm. And so I realized that I myself had developed metabolic syndrome. Mm. And um, in my journey, of course, to, to help myself and to, to create a family, which I luckily did, I have two children right now. Um, in my in my journey, I learned a few. Uh, I ended up stumbling upon this low carb diet and eventually intermittent fasting. So when I decided that it was time to leave Mozambique, I decided to return to Canada, and I met Dr. Fung, Dr. Jason Fung, at a conference. Um, I was lucky enough to be with the, some of the South African people that I knew, and they knew Dr. Fung, and they there was an, somewhat of an introduction. And uh, when upon our return to Toronto, Dr. Fung asked me to join him and Megan Ramos at their IDM clinic here in Toronto, specifically in Scarborough. So for the last couple of years, that's what I've been doing. I work exclusively for the IDM program, and IDM stands for, stands for Intensive Dietary Management uh, Program. So we, we have an, an in-office program, but at this moment in time, our, the, the biggest uh, um, part of our program is our online dietary management program. So I'm one of the dietary coaches. We, we have grown. There's a few other dietary coaches besides myself. Um, and so I, I don't actually work as a naturopath any longer. I work as a dietary coach for the IDM program. Mm. And that's a quick summary of my background. <laughs> yeah, you kind of summed it up very nicely. You, you flew, flew right through it like a storyline. <laughs> and uh, what, what would you say like, is the biggest difference between uh, the dietary problems of people in Mozambique and the, the ones you treat in Canada at the moment? So... Um, if you know a little bit about Mozambique, it's a quote-unquote developing country. Uh, the most, I think, prominent thing here that's relevant to your question is that Mozambique has a big dichotomy, right? They have very low-income uh, people, and then they have a thriving uh, middle-to-upper-class community. So what I find, unfortunately, is that in the middle-to-upper-class community, their uh, globalization has kind of led people to have the exact same metabolic syndrome conditions that they have in um, your part of the world and my part of the world. Mm. So if anything, I was dealing more with people that had issues with obesity and hypertension and diabetes. Um, and I wasn't, unfortunately, it, my initial intent when I went to Mozambique was to work with a completely different group of people, but that uh, just wasn't available to me. And so my, the only thing that was available to me was to see these people that were happy and willing to come to me for weight loss. And so it is significantly different. Their diet has become uh, very globalized. So it's a mixture of their traditional diet, which is more of a peanut-based with greens and some sort of uh, grain like rice or corn-based. Uh, uh, there's a corn-based pap that people eat traditionally mm -hmm. uh, with a peanut curry, so peanut and greens uh, curry. That is the traditional Mozambican diet. Uh, it's something that people now eat on occasion. On well, pe by people I mean this this specific middle to upper class community, because generally the general population still eats this on a daily basis. Um, the the other part of the of the community eats this on occasion, mostly on holidays as part of their celebratory meals, and every other day they eat just like the rest of the world: French fries and lots of chicken. People in Mozambique love chicken. Uh, we have great chicken. Uh, and, and with great spices. And so they eat uh, in, and with a lot of junk food, a mm. lot of pop, 
There's a lot of or soda, as some will call it. So there's a lot of Coca-Cola, uh, Fanta, and all these other things. I, I believe that probably the general population drinks more soda than they drink water, unfortunately. Lots of juices. Um, and children are subjected to that same sort of diet as in the developing uh, world. Lots of snacks throughout the day. Uh, I think parents uh, all over the world are afraid that their children will die if they don't snack every two hours. Mm. And so metabolic syndrome develops quite quickly, unfortunately, and quite early. So there's a lot of childhood obesity in that community. Yeah, it's, it's true. Like there's a common pattern uh, that low-income families, they tend to have poorer metabolic health as well because they don't have, you know, maybe, maybe it's, they simply don't have access to that much better food or they simply have, you know, too much other stress and uh, these other conditions that make them less healthy. And uh, yeah, it's a common pattern indeed. So what would be like the most common causes of these, these, these very, very common uh, diseases, you know, like obesity, diabetes and uh, metabolic syndrome? You know, I think that uh, if you if you read a little bit uh, about Dr. Fung, so Dr. Fung is the is the medical doctor that I work with currently. If you read a little bit about his background, he's written uh, three books now. He's had a, uh, his third book, The Diabetes Code, is coming out. It's come out in Canada already. It's coming out uh, in the states and I think in parts of the world in April. Um, his first book, The Obesity Code, was quite popular. Uh, his second book was as well. Uh, the Complete Guide to Fasting. But in, in his first book, I think he pinpoints the most important factor here, which is the insulin factor. Mm. So insulin is obviously a hormone that our body should produce, naturally produces, in response to food and other things. Um, I think the biggest issue when it comes to obesity and metabolic syndrome is a hyperinsulinemic state. So it's our body overproducing insulin in the majority of, of the cases. And this happens, for I think, for two main reasons. Number one is that our diet worldwide, whether it's Mozambique or here in Canada or where you're from, unfortunately, our dietary guidelines um, in the late 70s and 80s all over the world changed quite drastically. And people were told to eat um, a whooping six to 10 uh, servings of, of grains a day or yeah. carbohydrates a day. It's, it's quite ridiculous. Yeah. So number one, we've increased our, our carbohydrate intake or sugar and grain intake tremendously. And number two, we've started, uh, we started back in that in, in the 80s, eating these um, small meals many times a day. So this it's a twofold problem. It's just eating way too many refined carbs, and just eating way too many times a day. So there's a there's a constant insulin response that is mm. happening. So carbohydrates create a, a very high insulin response, uh, meaning that your body produces more insulin when you eat more carbohydrates. And uh, every time that you do eat, you produce insulin, you create uh, this insulin response. And so the more times that you eat, the more your insulin rises. And this leads to a hyperinsulinemic state, so a higher than desired insulin uh, level. And it leads to insulin resistance, which eventually, as we know, leads to diabetes. So when people hear insulin, they only think diabetes. But there's a bit of a spectrum here. You could be on different levels of the spectrum when it comes to uh, producing too much insulin. You might not necessarily be diabetic right away. There's a bit of a journey. And some people do become diabetic quite early on. Um, I, in fact, I read something yesterday that the biggest um, rise in diabetes is actually in adolescents, mm. type 2 diabetes, which is horrendous. Yeah. Uh, horrendous. Obesity and diabetes, it's actually the, the, the sort of the pocket of, of our community that has the biggest rise uh, right now is adolescents. You shouldn't be getting diabetes. You shouldn't get diabetes, period. But you shouldn't be getting diabetes until you're much later on in life, right? The spectrum should be here, but it's mm. not. 
Mm, yeah, and like, so just like, too many things, too, too many carbs and eating too often. Mm, yeah, it's true. Like uh, the school system also kind of forces it. And uh, yeah, you have to be eating a lot of carbs and sugars and fruit and all the time. And you, you actually won't allow your body to enter into this, you know, fat burning state in a sense where you have low insulin. So yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, it's constantly high. In defense of the school system, the school system in hospitals and all public uh, sort of uh, establishments are required to follow the dietary guidelines. So I don't think the school system is <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> They are required to follow the dietary guidelines. And the current dietary guidelines are to eat uh, many times a day in a high level of carbohydrates, mm. not to mention a lot of other specific things. So the fact that our diet is also riddled with um, polyunsaturated uh, yeah. uh vegetable uh, oils. This is another major, major issue, mm. which is also started at about the same time, you know, just about the same time that people started to eat more carbs, they started to, to consume more industrialized fats as opposed to the natural healthy fats that we should be focusing on, like, um, you know, good old butter. <laughs> and I know in your, in your part of the world, it's just as prominent as it is, you know, it's starting to be here. More butter, more coconut oil, more... Um, you know, yeah. anyway, yeah. lots of other healthy fats, avocados and, and uh, um, avocado oil. Yeah. So what, what do you, what does the, what does your program recommend people to follow instead? What kind of dietary recommendations? We do recommend a low carb, high fat diet. So that's kind of what my, my uh, sort of journey led me to personally and professionally for the last at least eight years. I've been, I've been recommending a low carb, high fat diet. Um, but our program focuses uh, most exclusively, not exclusively, but it, but it is a fasting program. So this is what Dr. Fung is known for. This is what he lectures all over the world uh, on him, him and Megan Ramos. They uh, lecture on intermittent fasting as well as some extended fasting protocols. So we, we, we monitor people through um, intermittent fast, which, which could be anything from skipping uh, snacks <laughs> that would be key, you know, having made meals and no snacks, that would be ideal, which is what people used to do until the 70s. It wasn't weird then, mm. but it, it, it's weird now to tell people to not snack. People think that they're supposed to snack. Yeah. Yeah. Children are supposed to snack. Um, and so focusing on main meals, avoiding snacks. Um, and some people will go on to skipping uh, a meal, so doing intermittent fasting uh, patterns. I personally follow an 18-6 uh, intermittent fasting uh, schedule on my eating days, which means that I eat two meals a day in a six-hour period, and I fast for 18 hours, uh, which is great. Makes me mm. feel great. I eat very well when I do eat. I eat uh, enough and properly when I do eat, so two main meals. And uh, some alternate day fasting or, or longer fasting periods, and that could be any, anywhere from 24 to 36 to 42 hour intermittent fasts and some people will, will with proper supervision will, will go on to do some extended fasts hmm. yeah it's true like you mentioned that it's actually a cultural issue in a sense of people frowning upon skipping meals and frowning upon eating these kind of low-carb meals and they think that it's, it's it's unhealthy or it's it's even dangerous so it's 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 a cultural issue like um yeah, the, the idea of, you know, doing intermittent fasting, even as little as skipping breakfast or something like that, that's going to actually cause a lot of, you know, people are going to freak out because of it. And it's, 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 no it's, a, doubt about it's it. a cultural mindset thing, you know, it's, a, it's a quite a huge problem. So it, it's definitely something that needs to be, you know, fixed or gradually overcome with some, with some work. So I think you're doing the 
are, I think you're heading in the right direction with uh, your programs. So do, do you have mostly men or female, female patients? At this point, we have a mixture. I think traditionally, um, pre-menopausal or post-menopausal women uh, tended to be the, the group of people that searched for dietary programs. Um, nowadays, we have um, a wide range. We don't see children because it is primarily a fasting program. And even though we believe in fasting and we get great benefits from fasting, it, it is not a it's it's not a good idea to put people, uh, children through uh, fasting. And we and we don't recommend that in the in the least bit. So we don't see any children. Uh, we only mm. see adults. Um, I myself have two children, and my children have uh, three meals a day uh, without any snacks. So if you want to call that fasting, then great. I think that's great. But aside from that. That's about what they do. They're growing and, and growing quite, uh, quite well and, and in a very healthy pattern. So mm. our patients right now, our patient population is both men and women and um, um, anywhere from people in their 20s trying to do this from pre for prevention uh, purposes. A lot of people in their 20s already have metabolic syndrome. So this mm. is a, a, yeah. a growing concern, as I said. And, and uh, men and women in their in, in different stages of their lives. Mm. So what's the difference between men, men and women while they're fasting? Do they need to approach it differently? Or? Uh, I, I, I think that from a physiological perspective, I don't think so. Uh, from a, a lifestyle perspective and psychological perspective, it might be quite different. I, I think still traditionally all over the world, women tend to be the, the caregivers in the home. Um, it's not the case for everybody. I have many, many patients who tell me that their husbands or um, male spouse are the cooks in the house, which is great. Uh, but I think that, you know, if you're a woman that's primarily in, in charge of the cooking for your family and you want to fast, you know, that might be an initial uh, sort of hurdle uh, because it might be more difficult to, to, to decide to fast if, if you're having to cook for people. Mm -hmm. I think it's, it's something that people tend to overcome quite easily. Uh, fasting is a voluntary uh, choice. So when people decide to fast, they're doing it out of their own sort of free will. It, it, it is, there is, uh, Dr. Fung likes to say that there's, this is, fasting is like exercising a muscle. You get better at it as you go. Uh, depending on the diet that you follow. So, of course, if you follow a low-carb, high-fat diet, We've clinically seen that people have a much greater ease with fasting when people do follow a higher carb diet. And a lot of people want to maintain their higher carb diet, but still get the benefits of fasting. And, and that's, it is possible, but it's much more difficult. It's much more difficult to go from a high insulin state, so eating lots of carbs, to then going to a, um, um, a fasting state, mm -hmm. which uh, requires your body to, to, to go on your own reserves. And it's much more difficult to, to switch from one to the other it's much easier to go from a sort of low carb, high fat diet, which your, your body already is in a lower insulin state. So a more fat burning state into a fasting state. So that, that is easier. So, you know, I, I don't like to, I know that there's a lot of uh, information out there that says that women because of something or other have a hard time fasting. I don't find that at all. I'm a woman. I fast. My biggest issue with fasting was that I uh, had to really work on my hydration Mm -hmm. um, water and, and sodium intake in order to be able to fast longer than, you know, the regular times, time period that I normally fast. Everybody fasts, right? I mean, uh, even if it is for just your the 
period of time that you're sleeping, you're fasting. That's why the first meal is called breakfast. It yeah. breaks fast. So fasting is a natural state that everybody goes through. It, it is, as you said earlier, uh, ideally, the, the homeostatic balance is that you're burning and storing and burning and storing. If you're storing all the time, which is what people are starting to do, mm. they're constantly eating, there's going to be an, an, an imbalance. Yeah, and uh, I also believe like that uh, if you do practice intermittent fasting, then you're going to, uh, yeah, like Dr. Funk said, you're going to build up your fasting muscle in a sense. You become more keto-adapted and your body becomes more efficient at using its own body fat for fuel and you're going to experience less hunger. You're going to have more mental clarity despite the presence or despite the lack of food. And uh, you also protect your muscle tissues and uh, things like that against the catabolism. You're not going to lose your you know, vital organs just because you skipped breakfast or something like that. You know, it's, it's actually you know, a very important part of the physio physiology that you don't want to lose. A hundred percent. And more energy. The one thing that people cannot fathom and are pleasantly surprised is that they actually feel more energy when they yeah. fast and not less energy, even though they're consuming um, maybe less uh, exogenous. So they don't have to put in a, a fuel from the outside. They get, they get to burn their own fuel, mm. which provides quite a, it's a very stable source of energy as opposed to this up and down source of, um, of energy when you're eating and not eating uh, higher carbs, right? There's a, there's a, a spike and then there's a dip and then that feels very unwell hmm. after a while yeah so how long do you recommend uh people to fast for so on a regular basis as i said which is what i call my eating days which is most days i recommend a 16-8 or an 18-6 sort of pattern which means that you fast for 16 to 18 hours and you eat uh, two meals because it's important to not be grazing all day uh, during your eating window, you know, two, two smaller eating windows. So that's my, that's our just general recommendation. So it, it, as you said, it might be a shocker for people that you're eating two meals a day and that you're skipping a meal. Um, you don't have to skip breakfast. Uh, you could eat breakfast and then a late lunch. So then you, you finish eating by, you know, three o'clock, four o'clock in the afternoon, which is great. Um, you're going to have much less of an insulin response if you eat your food before sunset. So, of course, uh, as the seasons change, that can change as well. Or some people choose to have a lunch and a dinner because dinner is a time of family and of uh, being with other people and sharing a meal with other people. So maybe they would have, um, you know, an early lunch and, an, and a dinner, which is great. I, I play between those two schedules. As I said, a lot of our patients or, or clients in our program are doing uh, some more uh, intermittent fasting schedules, some different intermittent fa fasting schedules like alternate day fasting or even some extended fasts with some supervision. And that's because uh, these are people that are going from an excess point and they're trying to reverse their metabolic syndrome. Mm. So, uh, you know, a maintenance sort of, um, of, of approach would be different than somebody trying to heal. Yeah. For sure, yeah. Like, uh, I definitely noticed myself that uh, skipping breakfast is a lot more convenient for most people because they, you're already not hungry after you wake up, or you can use that mental clarity to, to you know, do some work during the day. And dinner is usually associated with more, you know, these family gatherings. So, but what what do you allow your patients to consume uh, while fasting, besides you know regular water and uh, sodium? 
That it, it depends. It depends. I think a lot of people, as we get to know uh, the benefits of fasting a little bit uh, better, and in, in, um, in 2016, um, the Nobel Prize uh, for Physiology was won by a Japanese uh, physicist who who talked about how fasting can trigger this thing called autophagy, which a lot of people talk about now, which is the body's ability to sort of uh, eat away its at uh, its uh, sort of garbage and dead parts and dead protein and um, there's so much more to autophagy that we don't even understand. But really, um, there are so many, many, so many benefits to fasting that we are learning throughout time. And we, we kind of, if you look at our history, we know there are benefits to fasting. It's been used throughout uh, the history of, of human beings as a way to, to heal, as a way to express spirituality, religion, and everything else. So, you know, it's not something new. Let's just put it that yeah, way. And yeah. there are there are known benefits uh, to fasting. So as people get to to know more about this and get to uh, learn about an ancient practice um, again, they start to. Uh, most of the time, I find people are trying to learn how to fast, how to have a cleaner fast. So a fast that that um, we we do. Uh, believe that water and sodium is a requirement to fasting. And as I said to you, I myself, my, my only obstacle or my biggest obstacle to fasting wasn't hunger or lack of energy. It was dehydration. So mm. that's a big thing. But there are a lot of things that people choose to have or, or uh, we call them sort of crutches or training wheels to get people fasting a little longer. And, and, and that's, you know, bone broth is not very known in, 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 this, in this sort of um, – a group of people uh, in this in this lifestyle, uh, bone broth because of the the benefits and the electrolytes and all the other components that you can get from and you know all our great grandmothers used to make bone broth mm. again not a new thing. Uh, I personally do make bone broth and I do consume bone broth, but I don't consume it during my fast. I consume it on my eating days, mm. but it is something that can help people get through a fast. There are electrolytes in there, so it'll help with dehydration and some some nutrients um, if you need that little push to fast a little longer. Other people will do uh, some fats. Again, uh, keeping in mind that fat has an a, produces an insignificant insulin response. So it's something that you can use as a little push, a little added fuel without having your insulin go up um, during your fasting periods. And so I, I'm talking about, you know, coconut oil again or, or any of MCT oil or avocado oil. People will use different types of oils um, to push through a fast just to, to add a little bit. Um, again, it's not something you want to be having all the time. You know, these are short periods of fasting. You just want your body to be able to to clean up a little bit and and sort of burn a little bit uh, until you go in store again, right? So you don't really, uh, if you're doing shorter periods of fasting, you probably eventually anyway, you won't really need anything. You'll feel just fine uh, without any detriment to your health, quite the opposite. But if you mm. need a little push, there's a few things that you can, you can intake. Yeah, I, I agree that... Uh during the initial, you know, fat adaptation period, where you're not that, where your fasting muscle isn't that strong yet, then it's yeah, it's, it's it can be a good idea to use these kinds of yeah, bone broth and uh, bulletproof coffees to satiate yourself and to keep us keep your body nourished. But later, I believe, like it would be better to skip these kinds of things because, like we mentioned, like autophagy. And I'm afraid, like the, the, these bulletproof coffees or MCT oils, they can actually inhibit autophagy. And uh, yeah, <laughs> I would, I would we rather. Don't, we don't know too much, but I, yeah. I, we're pretty 
we're pretty we're pretty confident that any amount of 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 uh, fuel calorie would inhibit autophagy. Yeah, and the same. Which is fine. Which is fine. Yeah. Fasting for autophagy. Autophagy yeah. might be a different stage, a different level, a different goal. Uh, a later goal, but if you are looking into autophagy, and, and many people are, yeah, you don't you don't you don't want to have autophagy, you know, twenty four seven all uh, either because <laughs> you would I, I would imagine you would you, you eat up all your tissues. So yeah, there are different reasons why to do fasting, and uh, yeah, ketosis and fat loss are one, and autophagy and those are the other. So yeah, it exactly. comes comes down comes down to the individual and their and their goals. But what about stuff like dry fasting? Have you had any experience with this i do not i i have i i don't i even uh uh use caution when when talking about that because i don't think that i know enough i have zero experience with dry fasting i have never recommended it to anyone i do know of people that believe in dry fasting i've talked to some people who believe in it and have have wanted to have a conversation with me about it i i do not have uh, I have no comfort level around that. Mm. Uh, so, you know, dry fasting, meaning a fast without, without any, any uh, water or electrolytes. Of course, again, we all dry fast for a certain amount of time. We all sleep and most of us don't drink when we're sleeping. And that's a, a short period of time. How long can we go without water and uh, electrolytes? I have no idea, and I, I at this point I have no interest in finding out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it would be it would be another wise idea to try and test your limits, so to say, to push yourself to that extremes. And I would not recommend it <laughs> at all. I, well, I tell you that even when I fasted with water and very little salts, I couldn't make it through. Hmm. Um, you know. Even, even 20 hours, I, I felt very, very unwell. So I specifically know that in order for me to fast, I need a lot of water and sodium. Hmm. I think, I, I think it, it can be done and it can be very effective and healthy, but you simply first have to become very well adapted to fasting and then you have to know what you're actually doing. So you, do, you don't want to do it if you have no idea what you're doing. So <laughs> it requires I, a lot I of practice. You know, I, I like to think that I respect people's approaches and their own individual approaches. Um, I would never recommend that to somebody and I would never want to be responsible. And I would never, I, personally, it would, I, I don't think that it would work for me. Hmm. So I'm just going to have to make do with, with uh, water fasting. But um, I would be very cautious about people recommending that to other people. Hmm. Yeah, true, true. But uh, what, what about, we mentioned, we mentioned that you wouldn't recommend children to fast so I, I would I would imagine that the same would apply to women who are pregnant or breastfeeding. One hundred percent. It's a growing period. It's not a period for fasting. It's it's also not a period for ex excess storage, <laughs> as people would like to believe. There's a lot of complications that come with a with a with an unhealthy pregnancy. Um, I'm actually writing quite a bit about that lately. Um, you know, gestational diabetes, obesity during pregnancy. That comes with complications for not just the mother, but the fetus. And I think this is something that women are not aware of. Mm. They're not aware that their insulin status uh, during pregnancy is going to have long-term effects on their child. Yeah, it's true. Like they, it is almost, it becomes an excuse almost like I'm pregnant. I can eat whatever I want because I'm, I'm eating for two. And yeah, they don't see, they don't know that the epigenetics are going to have a huge impact on the future health of the child. So Huge impact, yeah. a lot bigger than people think. I actually believe that the current obesity epidemic that we have in children is due to uh, unhealthy pregnancies. Hmm. So, like, uh, they're not going to do fasting, but what about 
what kind of nutrition plan would they, would they follow? Should they still follow this kind of a low-carb ketogenic meal? I cannot think of one human being that I wouldn't recommend a low-carb, high-fat diet to. Not one. I haven't yet come across one person mm. that I would say would uh, not benefit from a low-carb, high-fat diet. Mm. The problem with uh, women uh, when they're pregnant, uh, switching to a low-carb, high-fat diet from a regular diet is that they can, they can be, again, uh, exposed to this period of dehydration. So if it was properly supervised uh, and if they had enough information, they could very easily transition. And a lot of women end up transitioning because they develop gestational diabetes. Mm. And uh, the conventional, <laughs> unfortunate recommendation is that they still consume high carb and they just inject or they take medication. But a lot of women choose to, to change their diet during pregnancy to prevent or to, or to resolve gestational diabetes so it's mm. it's totally uh, yeah. plausible i actually believe it to be the healthiest diet uh both pre-pregnancy so this is a big thing and this is what i'm writing a bit about on right now preparing your body for pregnancy uh is is key i think in order to prevent complications and in order to to uh spare your child of unnecessary uh, metabolic syndrome um and then a you know, maybe one day I'll talk a little bit more or focus a little bit more on, on diet during pregnancy, which is not something I focus on very much. We don't see, we are a fasting program. Even my patients that get pregnant, which luckily for me, lots of our patients search for our help to get pregnant and they, and they successfully uh, get pregnant, which is really my passion. Um, a lot of these women choose to, to get some advice from me about diet throughout pregnancy and they take a little break from our fasting program, of course because they're pregnant and then they, they go on to breastfeed most of them. Mm. And so I don't really follow at this moment in time, many pregnant or breastfeeding women, um, except to prepare them for pregnancy and then hopefully guide them on a better diet during pregnancy. Mm. Yeah. Like, especially if, if the woman is pregnant then they're more sensitive to these different uh, changes in their nutrition and their more, ho their hormones are more vulnerable in a sense. So is, is it true that uh, fasting can you know, mess up uh, women's hormones or they can miss their periods or something? It is true that fasting has a hormonal effect and that most of the time is beneficial. <laughs> okay, so that's the whole point of fasting. Uh, the whole theory behind obesity and metabolic syndrome that we believe in is the insulin theory, which is a hormone. Mm. So it is true that fasting has a hormonal effect. Now, is it detrimental? Most of the time it's not. It's quite positive. It will put you in a better hormonal uh, balance. Uh, most of the time, uh, women's concern is that they don't get a regular period uh, when they have metabolic syndrome or PCOS like I had, and so they don't ovulate. And so they want, uh, not that they want, but once they, they, they learn about fasting, they realize that fasting can actually cause a better hormonal balance and this will ultimately look like more regular periods and more regular ovulation. Now to do that during pregnancy would, would, would first of all make no sense and second of all not be a recommendation. Mm -hmm. Hmm. But what about, for, for, uh, but what about yeah. the thyroid hormones? A lot of people tend to suffer from those as well, hypothyroidism, especially if they're doing like fasting. Or... I don't believe that fasting creates hypothyroidism. I believe that women and men that have an abnormal thyroid uh, level need to have that addressed and controlled through medication. Just like type 1 diabetics who don't produce enough insulin need to take exogenous insulin. Mm -hmm. uh, 
people with abnormal thyroid uh, levels need to have that controlled as well with proper medication. So it's like yeah. a separate thing, you know, caused by the other lifestyle factors. It could be. It could be genetic. It could be a whole bunch of other things. Some people have uh, tumors from their thyroid that have to be removed and so part of the function is lost. There's many different reasons why people would have uh, thyroid abnormalities. I definitely don't think that a ketogenic diet or fasting would cause uh, damage or harm to the thyroid gland. Mm. Especially if you, you know, couple it up with proper feeding and getting enough micronutrients during the actual eating phase. So that's, that's a crucial part as well of, you know, it's fasting. It's crucial yeah. for everybody. You, in order to fast, you have to feast properly. So we believe in a fasting and feasting uh, approach. Yeah. So, so how do you break a fast then and what do you recommend to people eat then? It depends. I mean, uh, if you're doing a, 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 a sort of shorter uh, intermittent fasting schedule, your, your, you, your, your, your meal that you break your fast with is just a regular meal. So myself, for example, when I do a 16 or 18 hour fast, my first meal is a ketogenic, I, my, my diet is ketogenic, so it's a strict low-carb, high-fat diet, moderate protein. And so my first meal and my second meal um, are um, rich nutrients, full of nutrients um, from a, a high-fiber, uh, low-carb vegetables, and um, a moderate amount of protein from different sources. I, I, I eat a, a different different range of proteins. I do eat animal uh, proteins. Um, and personally, although I have many, many patients who, who do not, who are vegetarian or pescatarians or whatever, whatever else they choose to or believe is best for them. And then I have a, a, a high fat diet. So the, my two meals are, are large, uh, nutrients rich. If I do, uh, on, the, on the occasions that I do longer fasts, which I do, um, I, I do a, a three to five day fast about once a month. It's something I aim for, uh, for autophagy and all the other things we talked about. But when I do a longer fast, breaking that fast is, is a lot more, uh, it's, it's a lot different. Typical. So I, it's atypical. It's an atypical way because my body has uh, less digestive enzymes uh, at that point in time. You know, the body is kind of, not produced as many as it normally would because I haven't been eating. And so I, I would break it um, with something smaller um, just to get some digestive enzymes going. And then later on, I would have a larger meal or I might just uh, have one meal on the day that I break a fast, but, but have it in sort of a gradual approach just to get my digestive enzymes going. And different people will have an easier ability to break a fast than others. So some will have to break it uh, slower. And again, remember that people that are fasting, believe in fasting, have had great benefits of fasting, um, and, and are usually pretty well educated on the subject matter, I hope. And so they know, they know their body, and they know that, okay, this, this, this fast, I need to break it uh, a little slower so that I don't have a digestive upset. Otherwise, you could. You could feel very bloated, unwell, you don't have enough digestive enzymes, that food could go right through you, you could get loose stools, you could get constipation, you could get a lot of unpleasant uh, feelings if you were to break a longer fast inappropriately. So there's, it's stuff that we, we learn along the way and we coach people on. Hmm. But do you think like something like this carb cycling or having a few days where you consume more carbs and you know, getting off the ketogenic diet, would it be beneficial for, for health and uh, longevity? 
I don't think it's beneficial. I, I know that a lot of people believe that it is. I'm not sure why, how that makes any sense. Why would you want to spike somebody's insulin uh, at different periods of time? Um, personally, I don't see any benefits to it. And there's a lot of reasons why I don't see benefits to it, particularly because I see people with metabolic syndrome. So they have no benefit from going back into a more metabolic uh, syndrome um, status, number one. Number two, uh, a lot of people, myself included, are very addicted to carbs and are very uh, have a very sort of uh, unhealthy relationship with yeah. carbs. And so when when I when they eat carbs, it creates a lot of uh, a binging tendency. People think that fasting creates binging; it does not uh, at mm. all. If anything, fasting will decrease that insulin status, and it makes you less crave these sort of foods less. However, people that eat a lot of carbs and then fast will want to eat, uh, will crave because they don't get that out of their system. And so they're constantly craving. They go through that withdrawal phase. But if you get rid of that, if you eat uh, foods, different foods, your cravings go down. So if you're constantly putting people through the cycle, it's very unpleasant. And it also, um, you could be going through that whole electrolyte imbalance over and over and over again. So it does not make any sense to me, to be honest. What I do think is that the hum human nature is we're, we're not uh, perfect. If you see keto as, as perfection, which I personally think it's pretty close to perfection, <laughs> I just don't think that people can stay keto um, some people can stay keto all the time. Some people choose to and do very well. I did very, very well on a strict keto diet for a long period of time. That was my uh, choice, and that's how I overcame my metabolic syndrome, and I felt very, very well. I'm currently in a maintenance phase, and so it, it, it's a lot of this, and uh, it's not as easy. And so I do think that there is some um, sort of involuntary or uh, unwanted carb cycling that can happen. And so the, the question is, how do you get over that? You know, how do, what do you do after you've had higher carbs? Because it puts your body in a totally different state. It puts your body in a retention state. You feel very bloated. You feel a lot of craving. And it can even affect some people's emotional stability, myself included. If I eat more carbs, it, it, it does have an – I have PCOS, or at least I have a history of PCOS, which uh, has some uh, sympathetic nervous system uh, effects. And so it does affect my emotional stability. I feel a lot better. There's a lightness that comes in, a, a, a lot more energy that also comes with uh, being in a lower-carb diet all the time. Hmm. I think it's also like a matter of context because, yeah, like you said, people who have metabolic syndrome, then, then they definitely wouldn't benefit from having these insulin spikes or carb cycling. But I would imagine someone who is training hard or who is an athlete or someone they can actually use those carbs to, you know, strategically boost their performance. And that's uh, a very good point. And that's, yeah. and, and we have been, th this is a, uh, something that's been brought up to us all the time. Myself, Megan, uh, and Dr. Fung, as well as our other dietary coaches, um, we see a handful of, of athletes. I actually personally don't see any except for maybe, um, recreational athletes. I know that Megan and Dr. Fung do, uh, support a couple of professional athletes that is not the um audience that we are speaking to most of the mm, time yeah definitely so it's still a matter of so, context so, so it's not even something i feel like i am if i am an expert in anything which i don't think that i that i would call myself that but you know i definitely that is not my my focus is not mm. professional athletes who need to carb cycle yeah. um and i don't even know that they do 
fully honest. I think that there's enough people out there that have trained athletes and now uh, focus on metabolic syndrome who don't believe in carb cycling either. So, mm, yeah. And un unfortunately, uh, a lot of athletes who are, you know, exercising at high levels, they still have metabolic syndrome and diabetes. So, so they would still benefit from having, you know, following a low carb diet and uh, doing it. Bingo. I think, I think we know that although exercise is an excellent uh, and, and necessary tool for humans, <laughs> um, I, I think that we have now learned that it's definitely not the best tool to help with metabolic syndrome. It's an adjunct to overall health. Mm. But if people's, uh, uh, people, people that have metabolic syndrome focus exclusively on exercise as a, as a healing mechanism, they're not going to have great success, unfortunately. That's I wish true. that they did, but they don't. <laughs> yeah. If it were only in calories in, calories out, then it'd be so easy, yeah. Right. Well, it would be easy for some people who are very good. I have a lot of patients who are uh, morbidly obese, obese uh, diabetics and they exercise tons they're not as dr fung would say these are not uh lazy people mm, yeah okay? as much as the the medical profession sometimes likes to to uh to think that people become obese or diabetic because they're they're lazy and gluttons that is not true that's right yeah and uh, what would be some like do you recommend taking some supplements for managing your blood sugars and insulin no, personally, we don't. It's it's all about the diet. I mean, there's sometimes people are deficient in something and they need to supplement with that. It's not what we normally see. Again, we see people with metabolic syndrome. So we see people with a disease of excess, hmm. not a disease of deficiency. So it's it's very rare hmm. that the people that we encounter have, have deficiencies of any sort. Sometimes people might have a vitamin D deficiency or a B12 deficiency or some sort of electrolyte deficiency and that, can be, that needs to be addressed. Hmm. But what about things like metformin or the, the, the very commonly you know, prescribed for most people? Our program is a dietary program. So we give no zero medical recommendations. We do require that people have proper medical supervision. So there, 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 are, uh, uh, there are always uh, medical requirements for different people. As I mentioned earlier, some people have thyroid concerns and that needs to be addressed. Some people have... Um, all kinds of concerns there's all kinds of things that people have when they come to see us hmm. yeah it's true like you can't you it, it has to you know you have to fix the root cause not the symptoms in a sense of prescribing them with some pharmaceuticals that that are only going to fix the surface level problems and they're going to leave the root cause there so it's still a life it's a Absolutely. lifestyle thing yeah so, and Dr. Fung is a medical doctor. He's a nephrologist. He's a kidney specialist. So obviously his patients that he sees, very often he has to put them on some sort of medication or, or other treatments like dialysis for kidney failure. So, of course, that's his scope of practice, and that is what he does. That is not my scope of practice. I am a dietary coach. So um, specifically, I'm a fasting coach. So I'm here to help people fast. Um, sometimes there needs to be some adjustment to medication for people to be able to fast. But that has to be done with their medical doctor. Hmm. Hmm. So what do you think like, is the biggest uh, problem in um, mainstream medicine right now? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that's for me to say. <laughs> <laughs> Personally, I, I don't want to go to war with anybody. I, 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 I think that what I tell my patients, and I think the biggest complaint that we get from patients is that they wish that their medical doctor was more supportive of a ketogenic diet or a fasting protocol because they've personally seen great benefits with it and they would like to have sort of the, their two consultants, you know, my, our 
program and their medical doctor on the same side. And very often that doesn't uh, happen. Mm. A lot of uh, conventional medical doctors uh, don't know enough about this, don't care to know enough about this, and don't really believe in it because this is not how they were trained. They were trained in, with a whole calorie in, calorie out theory of uh, obesity or metabolic syndrome. So um, I think that things will things are changing, will change over time. I think that, as we were talking about schools before, I don't think schools are the problem. I think that um, the whole structure of our dietary guidelines and our um, sort of institutionalized uh, 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 approach to, to diet is the main issue. Can we change that? I hope so. I It probably will have to be this sort of bottom-up sort of approach as people will have to revolutionize and, and hopefully get get some changes to this. Um, they, they would, there would need to be some serious changes to our dietary uh, guidelines in order for people to, to improve their health. Hmm. What kind of changes would you think like should be like immediately done or what should be like fundamental changes? I think our labeling laws are terrible all over the world. Uh, I think that the general dietary guideline is horrible. Mm. It's still in most dietary guidelines. They're still recommending that people have the, these uh, uh, polyunsaturated vegetable oils. And I think that's, that's pretty big poison. And it's still being uh, recommended for people, you know, as heart health and the, the heart associations all over the world and the obesity associations all over the world are recommending that people eat low fat still. And this is a major issue. And this idea, even yesterday I read something uh, for, for, um, for PCOS and fertility, they're recommending that women, same sort of thing, eat many, many small meals throughout the day to keep their blood sugar stable. This is what causes metabolic syndrome, one of the reasons for metabolic syndrome in the first place. So how are you helping somebody <laughs> by telling them to eat more often? You're not. And, and, and to eat whole grains, you know, again, you're going to have higher insulin responses. If your problem is insulin, and a lot of the, a lot of the people that, well, obviously we see, but a lot of the concerns all over the world this is this is one of the primary concerns right obesity diabetes and now cancer now we know there's a huge link between sugar and cancer hmm. so between insulin and cancer and so how are we helping people by telling them to eat more often and more carbs or not hmm. yeah even like not just cancer also like alzheimer's and parkinson's those are all getting tied back to blood sugar management and insulin so it's it's, it's a yeah it's a huge huge issue and it all it seems like there's it seems like there's one common factor here that people are just not uh wanting to get i think maybe mm. some people don't know about it and some people just ignore it yeah and uh, one of the easiest ways or the most proven ways or the mo and the most effective ways so far that we have are you know low carb low carb ketogenic dieting and fasting and uh, yeah it's it's weird you know why why it isn't why it hasn't been uh, uh, supported that much yet so we still have a lot, of, a lot of room to grow as a society. This is why I said to you, I haven't yet come across uh, one person that I would say a ketogenic diet or a low-carb, high-fat diet will be harmful for. Not one person. Yet it is, it is uh, still to this day, you know, very often when they talk about diets, they'll, they'll call the keto diet the most fad diets or the most dangerous diets. And, and, and I, I'm not quite sure how that's even possible. It's the only approach. It's been used forever and ever. I mean, it's been it's been used for children with epilepsy since before the 1920s. Um, it, it, that should tell you a lot. If a ketogenic diet can help people with epilepsy, children with epilepsy, 
that's 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 for me that's tells me a lot it might not make sense to the people that i'm saying this but if you look into it it mm -hmm. would make a lot of sense yeah it's it's it really if you understand the physiology a little bit and uh, you understand how your body works, then it's, it, can, it can indeed, you know, look like a very sustainable diet. And uh, I totally agree that like it's one of the best diets currently that are, we, we as humans have, you know, managed to come up with in a sense. It's, it's extremely sustainable. I know that people say that it's not sustainable uh, because socially it, it might seem like it wouldn't be sustainable, but physiologically it's extremely sustainable. It's rich very high nutrients, obviously, uh, adequate amounts of macro and micronutrients. And like I said, for, for those of us that have some, you know, unhealthy relationships with food, if you are in a ketogenic state, consuming a proper ketogenic diet, you are not craving, not struggling. You're not, this is not a willpower game. Mm. That for me is key because that's what helped me uh, personally. Mm, yeah. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about your your program with that dr funk what does it look like or what to how do how can people uh, learn more about it okay so i can give you the our website it's uh idmprogram.com so as i said idm stands for intensive dietary management program.com uh, we currently have a dietary uh, an online dietary program uh with a different coaches it is a group program which means that people get individualized care within a group context which is important I think because you not only get to talk to a coach one-on-one -on -one, but you get to listen into other people's uh, journeys experiences questions it's very interactive very supportive there's a big community uh, feel to it which is uh, really very positive um, and so that's currently what we offer we dr. Fung as I as I mentioned is a nephrologist Megan is um, works with with him uh, personally with his with their patients, uh, um, and he 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 continues to be a practicing medical doctor here in Ontario. So his focus is nephrology. So he sees kidney patients. Um, but the IDM program, uh, in, in and of itself, is a dietary online dietary program. Hmm. So anyone can you know enroll in it, no matter what place of the world they're watching from. That's right. So the majority of our patients are currently in the United States. Uh, we have a f uh, some Canadian patients. Uh, of course, we're in Canada. Um, Australian, um, UK, all over Europe, um, all over Asia. We have all, a whole bunch of, you know, the Middle mm. East, I, you name it. Mm. I have patients from all over the world. It's, it's, a, it's a great way to communicate with people. It's a great way to... to it's, especially because the fact that it's an online program, it allows people to have as much support as they need as far as frequency of calls. Um, it's very interactive and it, it has worked out quite well. We've been doing this for a little while now. Mm, yeah. Uh, because yeah, most people of the world are, are diabetic. Even the biggest populations like India and China, they have a lot of issues with diabetes as well. So it's great that you can do yeah. it you know, worldwide. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We have, we do have a big, even here in Toronto, we have a big Asian community and, um, that seems to be, you know, their disease without a doubt. Hmm. Might be a cultural thing again. <laughs> it's a combination of factors. I think it's a genetic, uh, uh, factor combined with this whole globalization. As I was telling you about Mozambique, it's a mixture of uh, their own cultural diet with a 
huge sort of sugar uh, insurgents from from you know sort of Western. Although I don't yeah. think it's a Western diet any longer. I think it's a global diet. Yeah. Well, Nadia, I've uh, really enjoyed talking with you on this podcast, and uh, I'm also going to ask one of my last questions, which would be like. What would be this advice or practice or a habit that you wish you'd adopted earlier that uh, improved your body and mind? Fasting, no doubt. <laughs> At least uh, proper periods of fasting. What got me in trouble to begin with, besides my poor dietary choices, was the fact that I, that I ate too often. I would eat small meals. I, I w in fact, I wouldn't eat meals. I didn't like meals. I hated meat and vegetables. All I wanted to do was eat carbs. And so I would eat a very small amount every couple of hours. That's what got me in trouble. Mm. I wasn't even obese by the time I had metabolic syndrome. I had basically everything else. Um, and that was caused by uh, frequent snacking. Mm. No doubt about it. It's not, a, it's not a genetic thing. My family doesn't suffer from metabolic syndrome. My mother doesn't suffer from metabolic syndrome i created this myself unfortunately because i didn't know better hmm. yeah that's that's unfortunate but luckily you're on the right track i, I believe <laughs> thank so, you <laughs> yeah and uh, you mentioned uh, the websites where you where people can get in touch with dr fung and and your program but what about your own personal um, social media platforms or where can people find you personally I, I, I do have a website. I, I also have a Facebook page. At this point, I work exclusively for IDM. So anything that I do uh, is somehow related to IDM. Um, but I do have a, a website. My, my website is drnadia.com. So you spell Dr. D-O-C-T-O-R and then my first name, N-A-D-I-A.com. Mm -hmm. um, I share a lot of uh, stuff on there. I have a blog. I, have, uh, I share recipes a lot of information about fasting and very little about fasting actually. Most of the fasting information comes from our IDM website, but a lot about the ketogenic diet and uh, my own personal preferences and, and opinions. Hmm. Well, thank you for coming on to the show, Nadia. And uh, definitely I wish you, you know, great luck and uh, some more accomplishments in the field of medicine. And I hope that people do find people do find you know that your their way to your program and uh, if they need if they need to improve the health and i believe that it's it's indeed something that's going to be the norm in the future so you're heading in the right direction i believe thank you this is very nice of you and it was a pleasure i enjoyed yeah thank you that's it for this episode make sure you leave us a review on itunes and other social media platforms and other than that, subscribe, click the like, notification bell as well. Like always, thanks for watching. My name is Seem. Stay optimal, stay empowered.